This is episode number five with Jason Anik. Hello, and welcome to the Creative Strings Podcast. I'm Christian Howes, violinist, educator, and music business entrepreneur. I hope these interviews will inspire you to be creative in your life, in your art, in your business, in every way. So without further ado, let's get to it. Hey, everybody. Welcome to today's episode of Creative Strings Podcast. I'm excited to share this interview with a great, amazing young talent, Jason Anik. I've known Jason since he was 16, and he has accomplished so much in such a short amount of time. He's teaching at the Berklee College of Music, touring as a leader, put out a few of his own records, already been recognized really as one of the top jazz violinists in the world. And he does a lot of different things. He's a wonderful classical violinist, also wonderful at modern jazz. He's really into jazz gypsy jazz. He plays fiddle styles of all kinds. One of my favorite things about Jason is he's so positive. He's going to talk today about his mindset and how he's stayed on track and how it's helped him to develop as an artist and also to develop his career. Just so thrilled to know Jason and I'm thrilled to be able to share this interview with you today. I want to give a quick shout out to my friends at the Electric Violin Shop, our sponsors for the Creative Strings podcast series. All my gear I get through the Electric Violin Shop. Part of why I love telling people about the Electric Violin Shop is because they post their phone number at electricviolinshop.com and you can give them a call and they will talk you through it. There's just nobody that gives the kind of customer service and has the kind of deep knowledge of everything electric strings, whether you're a cellist, violist, violinist, bassist. They've got all the instruments, they've got all the accessories, all the gear that goes along with it. Feel free to give them a call. Tell them Christian Howes sent you. They can tell you about my rig if you're interested in that. Of course, I'm always going to recommend that you go with Yamaha. And if you get any strings, that you go with Diadario. But regardless, the Electric Violin Shop will help you figure it out. There's nobody else that does it like they do. And with that, we're going to move right on to this interview with the wonderful Jason Anik. <music> Jason, thank you so much for joining me today. I want to know about your practice routine. I mean, you have such a broad set of skills and you're so solid in so many different areas. So beginning when you were maybe 16 or 17 or maybe even earlier, when you decided to get really serious about all these things and then going on through the heart school of music. What was or still is your practice routine? I remember when one of the first things that you said to me when I met you is like, oh, yeah, just know all your modes and all your scales up and down the fingerboard in any position. And I was like, <laughs> and that was like the first thing you said. I was like, oh, okay, that seems like a lifetime of practicing. And so that <laughs> that's one of the things, actually one of my goals. How do you do that? How do you work on all the modes in all the positions in all the keys? I mean, you know, you probably are familiar with some of my suggested exercises or or whatever, but have you changed those up or do you have your own tailored you know, versions? It, well, one of the things that I'm always working towards is having a really good map of the fingerboard. 
So, you know, early on when I was first practicing, I was doing a lot of arpeggios, getting all the basic shapes down, putting those through the keys. I really like your method where you kind of stagger them. We keep going up and then back down. And so you basically hit every inversion. So I did a lot of those and I, and I still do those, especially if it's um, something I need to brush up on or if it's a new kind of scale. And then the way I did it was, you know, I've been more really mastering first position and third. And then I kind of slowly moved up when I had a really good map of, of uh, shapes and was slowly moving them up and practicing practicing them, like the shifting and getting into there. And then more about like having a linear path across the fingerboard, kind of like what um, like Billy Contreras and, and you guys do, where you'll stay up in there instead of always just going from low on the G and then up on the E, which is like the classical thing. Okay, so I want to clarify that. So yeah, like in a lot of classical repertoire, in other words, the shifts are kind of mapped out so that you're not up high on the G and D strings as much. And what you're saying is you'll practice the shifts, maybe doing a whole, an entire arpeggio just being in seventh position, for example. Is that what you mean? Yeah, that's that's one of the things I'm, I'm working on a lot now. And I did work on them over the years, but that's something I'm really trying to, I think there's a lot to be done there, especially when you start getting into more contemporary harmonies and different pentatonics and so so how many so how much time do you spend on just shedding arpeggios then or scales i mean you mostly are talking about arpeggios but i mean how much time yeah arpeggios and scales you know that ideally you usually will do that for you know for an hour or so wow really an hour yeah like yeah and i actually practice a lot of classical music i appreciate that you said i'm a good classical player but you know i i love it and i keep doing it but this there's so many amazing classical players that that's their thing. But I, I actually do love it. And I'm always working on like a different etude, road etudes or Kreutzer and like a Bach partita. I'm always working on one of those to, to keep keep that side of it. And I'm always learning new things about how, you know, how the, how the violin works.
how much do you practice now and how much did you practice when you were, you know, 19? I was about 15. I got the, that bug where I was like, I just need to be playing all the time. This is what I want to do. So, you know, probably five, six hours a day on a, you know, that would be it. But it also part of that would be playing or like doing play alongs or getting together and jamming and, you know, strict practicing a few hours. Yeah. And then a couple hours playing. And this was when you were 15 or 16. What about now? How much do you practice now? Some days it's hard, you know, if I'm on the road, maybe I'll play a gig, but maybe I won't have much time to practice. But when I'm home, I try to take advantage of it. Like today, for example, today was kind of a normal day. I didn't really have too much going on. Some business things I had to take care of, but, uh, you know, I, I practiced like four hours. Four hours. Wow. That's amazing. So, and this is one of the things that I think about with you is your solidity. I mean, you're just consistency, solidity. You just got it. It's in your fingers. It's so solid, everything you do. And your sound is so big and so much solidity. So, okay, our page is in scales for an hour, right? Somet yeah, sometimes, yeah. And then, if and then, I'm feeling it. Then what else, how, how else do you break down your practicing? What else do you do in terms of actual practice? Whatever, if it's playing along with play-alongs, how much of that do you do? Well, that was one of the things for people listening. Like one of the, those are the crucial years, like when I was younger and really trying to get all this stuff on my fingers. And so I'll talk a little bit about that because that was a little bit more regimented when I was doing like the four or five hours and not gigging as much. Like now I'm gigging all the time, but then I was like just straight practice. And so I did a lot of the Amersol play-alongs where I would work on taking things through the keys, you know, all like major, minor, dominant, different diminished. And, and it's really, I was driven to get this down and really get it and really explore it and, you know, have the facility, be able to play what I hear. What, what do you mean? I'm sorry. I just want to clarify when you say mm -hmm. the diminished and minor and major uh, with the Abersol play-alongs in all keys. How, how does that work? You know, usually how I did it was like towards the end of my practice, if, if it was like a really mental, like really my brain kind of hurt, that was a good practice. That means I really solidified something. So I would usually then do like an hour or so. Abersol's got one where it's like a live band that plays through all the keys and it might cycle, you know, like a minute through each key. And I'll, that's a good time to explore and really improvise. And I would record that and listen back to it as well. What does it play in all keys? Does it play a certain progression or a certain song? No, it's just, it would just hang on one chord, basically. So it's oh. like to really drill each, let's say one play along is like all the major chords. So it's just, it would just be like, hang on C, C major seven for a while. Oh, wow. But more, more than just having a metronome, it's like a band, you know? So it's a little more, you can be more musical. So so, so it's swinging or is it Latin yeah, it's, or rock Yeah, or each play-along changes. So that's, you know, that's something that's good about it too, is that one track might be like more Latin groove. So the grooves change. And I think it's just good to play more like playing with a band. And that's kind of the more exploration time. So let's say in my practice, I, I was really focusing on um, getting like fourths in the major scale, you know, just for example, like I want to get all my fourth. Then I would use the play along and I would improvise and I would try to use what I had practiced, but then try not to do what I practiced. And then when it comes out in the moment, that's when you know like what is going to come out when you're on the bandstand. And a lot of times I would record that and make sure I'm progressing. So let's say I work on something and in a moment I'm like, oh, that was hip. I'll listen back and oh, I was rushing or I was I was doing that. So I might spend a little more time on like what I was going for. So it's a, it was kind of a self-evaluation process as well.
love that. Now, I preach this a lot to people. I mean, the importance of practicing improvisation in sort of a systematic way, putting some kind of parameters on yourself, some kind of restraints upon yourself. In, mm-hmm. the, in this case, you were doing it with all keys, Abersoul backing tracks, and then recording yourself and listening back. I think it's so important. And so you mm-hmm. find that to be really actually, because I don't know a lot of people that actually follow through with this. <laughs> I mean, do you find yeah. it to be well, really helpful? Is it really helpful it, for you? It's like super helpful, but can be dangerous for some people because they could just noodle away. So maybe I did three hours of real structured, like solid thirds or a scale, really getting it with a metronome. But then I put on the play along, try to forget that all and just see what comes out with some of the things that I was working on. That's so let's great. say, you know, it's not for everyone to do that because you really have to have the drive and you have to be honest with yourself. You listen back to the recording and say, well, I'm rushing or I'm, I'm this and that. And also, you know, that's, that's a lot of times when teachers come in and they tell you that kind of thing. This is a great point too, because I talk about the importance of scoring yourself or grading yourself on different criterion, right? So you mentioned like rushing. So you grade yourself on how is your time feel? You know, you grade yourself on how are your ideas? What's your phrasing like? Are you leaving space? You know, is there enough variety? You know, is, is there a varied language? Are you developing motifs? All these sorts of criterion. But you're saying, it's dangerous because not everybody's able to score themselves. Uh, yeah, accurately. Yeah, some people might say, "Oh, that was that was awesome. That was hip," you know, and but it really wasn't. And so it, that <laughs> it can be it can be tricky. I think you know all the people who become great players are real self-critical, but also self-driven. So it's like we want to be good. We're not always we're down on ourselves to get better, and it's it's like uh, we always want to improve. And so that is a big aspect of it is like the listening back with honest ears. Wouldn't you agree that sometimes for people that are just beginning, it's important just to play and not judge it, right? Or not question it. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing is you don't want to get into this mindset. And I think a lot of times classical players have this. Like I'll do lessons with great classical players who you give them a scale, you give them something to read, they can play a blazing good tone. But then you just say, let's just jam and let's just try to like create. And it's just like shutdown mode, too critical on themselves so that's also a dangerous thing you don't want to be critical to the point where it like debilitates you your creativity don't want to be too critical on your creative side if you're in the moment and things are coming out that's great but you know the ultimate goal as improvisers is to always be in that zone where we're being creative and then we're in the moment but also to you know you're listening back as if it was planned but it wasn't so it's like we're perfecting the moment we all want to be able to create something new but as if it was a score you know so it has to have that level of intention behind it I, so I love that yeah I love so that so that's kind of the goal and so we have to just experiment and let go and try things and see what it's like when we're in that zone listen back and be you know critical But well it's like a friend of mine told me one time if you want to be a composer you know you need to compose a hundred songs and then throw them all away and then you'll be a composer and the way I think about that is for improvisers as well if you're just starting out maybe you don't want to be sort of scoring yourself or grading yourself in the beginning for some people at least you know it's just important to facilitate that creative process just to make it happen in under any conditions and not 
consider that it's good or bad and just to do it. And there's value in that process. But then at a certain point, once you've maybe overcome that self-consciousness, or if you've never had that self-consciousness in the first place, mm -hmm. then you can sort of start keeping score. But you do always want to remain positive. I, I agree with you. That's another thing I'd like to come back to a little later is just talk about how you maintain such a, a positive mindset, because that's one of the things about you that I think really, really sets you apart. Okay, so going back to your practice routine, though, really quickly. I just want to add one other thing. So the other piece of the puzzle that, to me, is the glue behind learning these scales and then improvising is transcribing other people's solos as much as you can. And so that's part of, you know, you got to add time into for listening and picking up licks, but analyzing them, like really have a deep understanding. Let's say you listen and you learn this Charlie Parker lick. Okay, what chord is it over? What notes are in the arpeggio? What is he doing chromatically? When I started to do that, then I'm starting to hear things and make sense in the moment when I'm hearing something and can instantly hear it and play it back. And that's a cool thing. That means we're training our ears. We're training our understanding of the language, the jazz language. Again, that's another big piece of the puzzle. Okay, so if I've got it right now, it's an hour of scale and arpeggios at least, and then you're going to do a good amount of transcription, and you're going to work on maybe some classical repertoire or other repertoire, and then you're going to do, um, then you record yourself improvising over backing but, tracks. Yeah, the backing tracks, or, or, yeah, or if it's like, you know, let's say I'm doing a recording session, then I'll do, I'll play to the those tracks, you know, backing tracks, and really focus on, on those. Again, it's a combination of sometimes it's... It's more focused on rap. Sometimes it's more just. I'm lucky that one. I've had I've had good teachers over the years, but I've also been very driven to you know be the best I can. And so if if I listen back and like I need to work on my tone or this or that, and so I'll just do long tones for like 30 minutes. You know, I'll just do that and just really focus on tone. So sometimes. I'll do audibles into my uh, into my practice routine. It's like audibles. Wait, what do you mean? <laughs> well, you know, like if you're playing a set list, it'd be like, oh, here's an audible. Like I, it wasn't planned, but here it is. You know? So uh, let's say I okay. plan out it, but then it, things will come. Uh, that's a football reference, right? You're calling it on the fly. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, exactly. Something okay, like that. good. No, but was, but you know, sometimes you you just get spaced out. So I might stop for a sec, and then come back, or try to compose. Or if I'm in like a creative mindset, I'll try to maybe maybe write something, or if a spark for writing. Because I mean, this you know, any time that I have free to either get better at my instrument or be writing, you know, that's that's going to be all part of that whole process. Well, what I like about this is that to me, a lot of the things you do resonate for me with things I've practiced or things that I've preached to people that they should practice. But what I like about it is that it's really kind of a hybrid between the best creative routines and the best kind of, you know, playing routine, like classical practice routine mixed with sort of a mm -hmm. quote-unquote jazz practice routine, right? Yeah, I was going to say just about that real quick with my history that my teacher at heart, 
uh, her name was Anthea Creston, she knew that I was pursuing jazz, but she worked on just technical etudes that were very specific. Like, but this one really helps you be able to play anywhere in the bow. This one really helps your tone. This is your double stops. Very specific. So that was like, you know, I could do that the hour every day. I had very regiment technical things that I was trying to overcome. And it wasn't like I had six hours of practicing like a um, concerto. You know what I mean? I was lucky that I didn't have to delve too deep into all the classical rep because I don't know. I just feel like I wouldn't have time for that. I mean, I, mm. I did like Bach and I spent more time on all the etudes, whether it's like specific bowing exercise, specific mm. intonation, shifting. And I, I do all these things with my students, too, who are at Berkeley. You know, a lot of them aren't there to study classical, but they all have um, different technical issues that need to be addressed. And so my background of the, being this hybrid, some of the technical side of classical with the jazz improvisation, that's kind of how I approach with my students at Berkeley. That's great. And, and obviously, Berkeley is an amazing environment you know, for someone to do this. But what I love about you is you went to the Hart School and you came out one of the top young jazz violinists anywhere and so well-rounded too. So I think a lot of schools could model after this. I mean, because a lot of schools I've spoken with directly, even Oberlin recently, you know, they were saying that if they didn't have a jazz violin teacher, they didn't feel that they could offer a jazz violin major. And I kept trying to say to them, no, look, <laughs> you know, a, a jazz violinist can study with a saxophonist or a pianist and they can take classical lessons with a, mm -hmm. a classical teacher. And that's exactly what you did. So what was your... That is exactly... It sounds class. like at heart, you spent a lot of time in the, the jazz studies classes, but then you also had private lessons, but you just didn't focus as much on classical repertoire. You did more etudes and exactly, technical yeah. development. Did you play in the orchestra? Did you play in string quartets? Did you play recitals? All my ensembles were jazz groups. That's great, man. That is so cool. And and Yeah, you... it worked out great. And and that's kind of what another reason that I was drawn to that program is like it seemed to fit and I really resonated with the teacher and where I was at the time it was like the perfect fit. I mean, you know, who knows if I went to Berkeley what would happen? You just can't look back, you know, you just you just move forward and you just keep growing. So talking about your routine again, now I've got a good solid idea of your routine. So it's, you know, I forgot to mention earlier, yeah, it's a lot of etudes, a lot of scales, transcription, then improvising over backing tracks with recording yourself, listening back later. And then also you make time for writing sometimes. Writing, uh, um, yeah, transcription, transcribing, yeah. Or, or composing, whatever. Just a couple detailed questions. When you transcribe, are you one of these people that believes, well, it's got to be by ear? Or if you can take advantage of reading, are you happy to do that? If you're learning ahead or you're learning a solo, if somebody gives you a chart, would you be just as happy to save the time of learning it by ear? Or are you really like no it's got to be by ear i'm an ear guy and i don't think the chart does the phrasing and the nuance justice i think that if you have a chart and you can also use that along with the recording that's great but if you're just looking at a chart like if you handed a great classical reader a chart and this is stefan grappelli's solo on this it's not it's not going to sound the same and i mean a big part of the transcription is trying to get the feel 
trying to get the sound. And that's something that I always tell people is, you know, how I developed my own voice was from taking all the things that really resonated with me from all the great sax players, you know, Charlie Parker, Cannonball, Sonny Steele, I've learned all stuff, but also like you, Chris, and, you know, Grappelli and D.D.A. Lockwood and Jean-Luc Ponty, and I've taken elements that kind of are more personalized to me, and that also involves, like, I would try to do everything down to the way this they sounded, their tone, shifting gears so that if, let's say, I was, like, playing along with your solo, I would try to do that as much as well as I can. I mean, you're you. I can't be you, but I can try because it's, it's really important part of the learning process to try to see how does he get that sound? Like, how does he do? You know, you start to learn how you can do things on your instrument, how you can make it have color. Since you're so systematic and I don't want to say OCD, but you're very thorough. <laughs> Since you've been so thorough on other things, I'm guessing that when you do transcribe and play along that you also record yourself and listen back and kind of, again, keep score to see if you're laying right in the cut with the soloist. Do you, do you do that too? Yeah, I've done that. Yeah. Record playing along with solos yeah 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 for sure okay but to clarify and i, I mean, do also i don't record every day it's just along the way and i also don't want to seem like you know the poster child for practice because things happen i'd say it's been good it's been days that it's been real solid and it's been what i wanted and then there's days where it hasn't but on days that it hasn't, I most likely was listening to a lot of music or maybe writing. So it's there was always something that helped the overall thing, you know. No, that's great. To clarify on this point about using the chart, but if you had the option to learn a solo and you had the recording of the solo, but somebody also said, well, here, you can use this chart along with it. Would no, you, that'd help. <laughs> you, okay, yeah, okay. It would, help, it would help with time, yeah, for sure. Well, that's what that's kind of what I was getting at because I, I but know. What I, would, what I would recommend to listeners who are learning learning this is to shy away from that at first. I mean, now me and you, we've transcribed so many solos. And so we can look at the chart and hear and instantly be able to analyze what's going on. But you don't really get that analyzation process until you've done so a couple. So like, I would say learn a couple Charlie Parker solos by ear and really figure out what he's doing. You know, to me, it's like you can analyze it. It's so perfect. It's like, you know, Bach, but with the swing in a way. You know, and I think laboring through a few of those really, really helps. It gets away from the music. But now, nowadays, I would be happy if it's like I need to do this transcription or I need to play this this weekend. Here's the chart. That would be good. I mean, of course, my ear's a lot faster as well. I like that. I, that's one area where sometimes I, maybe I would say the opposite. I mean, I would say for a lot of classical players, if you have the option, get the recording, but if you have the charts, you know, it, it'll save you a lot of time. And depending on how much time you have, because I mean, I'll give it to you. If you're putting in five and six hours a day, then you certainly have the luxury of taking three hours to do a transcription. But uh, mm -hmm. I think it's a balance in terms of, it's a trade-off, you know, so we're, yeah. we're not, we're not far off for sure. I'm so impressed with your discipline. And also I get that you're saying it's, you're not a complete, you're not completely OCD or whatever. And you try to maintain some balance in your life. I mean, that's what I admire about you is that you do so much and you do have a balance. And again, at such a relatively young age to have so many skills together as a musician. But also I want to talk a little bit about your business routine because you have developed a great career. 
I mean, you have a wonderful, if you want to call it a freelance career or entrepreneur career or whatever. I mean, you're teaching at Berkeley. You have regular sidemen work with John Jorgensen and others, and you're working as a leader. You're at a bunch of camps in the summers. You're writing music. You're releasing your own records, You know, doing a lot of promotion, which is absolutely necessary. So I know that your business, you know, your hustle is a part of your routine too. Do you mind talking a little bit about how you approach business? First of all, what is your attitude about doing business? Because a lot of artists, I don't think, are comfortable with it. But then also, what are the things that you do on a daily or weekly basis in your business to, to have come so far? Certainly in the past maybe four years, I've gotten a lot deeper into it and learned a lot more about on the business side of it. I think when you're a sideman, the, like the business kind of things are play as well as you can, do your best, be, have a great attitude, make the connections, meet as many people as you can, be the person that everyone wants to play with. So that is something that is business sensibility, and that let's talk about that because <laughs> you did that. When did you get the the sideman gig, the regular gig as the violinist for John Jorgensen? I mean, he's a wonderful guitarist and one of the top names touring the performing arts centers around the United States with his gypsy jazz ensembles. How old were you when you got that gig? I think I was twenty two. You were still in college, right? And how did you get the gig? How did John know about you? And how did you meet him? And how did you come to play for him? And how did you win the audition? I got backtrack a bit. So as I mentioned, late high school and through college, I was um, really delving deep into gypsy jazz styles, you know, listening a lot, really trying to get the intricacies of the styles. I went for a few summers, I went to this camp called Django in June, which is a great camp for all gypsy jazz. So a lot of Europeans came, really authentic. And so, again, I had all these opportunities to meet all these great players and, and jam with all these amazing people playing this style. And to me, I found that playing this genre, because when you think of gypsy jazz, when someone's starting a band, it's violin and guitar as the leaders. I loved bebop and I loved modern jazz, but there weren't as many examples. So I, I saw that, okay, this is a possible niche that I could pursue sue to really have some opportunities. And some playing opportunities started to come about. I met Robin Nolan, who's a great gypsy jazz guitar player from Amsterdam, through these festivals. And he was playing locally. And actually, my dad kind of helped me a little bit because back then I was a lot shy. I'm not really shy anymore. But I was a little shy. But I really wanted to play with him. My dad was like, hey, what do you think could happen? As you know how that kind of thing goes. So I ended up sitting in with Robin. And then he really liked my playing and asked me to come join him at the Montreal Jazz Festival. And so that was a great, big, big outdoor festival and put a lot of time into learning the music. And my dad videoed it and YouTube had just come out. This was like right when YouTube was coming out. And we put a couple of the videos from that festival up on YouTube. And around that time, John was looking for a new violin player and him and Robin knew each other through this scene. So John Jorgensen knew Robin Nolan, Robin being the guitar player I just played at Montreal Jazz Festival with. So John was asking around as, as people do, like, do you know any like hot young violin players? Players who do this style really do it. And so my name came up from a few different people from all the connections I made, including Robin. And he's like, well, can I hear him? Well, I had these new YouTube videos. So he got the recommendations from people. And then he saw some videos of me. He's like, yeah, okay, I'm going to give him an audition.
you made a video. I think that's a really important point to have yeah. a video. It's amazing to me how many young musicians do not, or any age musicians do not have videos. You absolutely need to have videos because people are going to hear you. Every time I go to a town and I hire a drummer or a pianist or a bass player, which I do <laughs> like practically every week, you know, that's yeah. what I do. I go right to video YouTube and I look for them. And if they don't have a YouTube video, they don't get hired most of the time. And if yeah. they do, then I can hear how they play. But a lot of times I can also see a lot into their personality. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I think that's huge because you want to know when you're hiring someone that they have a good attitude and you can learn a lot from a YouTube video if people are, mm -hmm. what their attitudes are like. So yeah, um, and that's a big part of it too is, you know, connecting and having the right energy synergy with the musicians. And so, yeah, you know, he saw having a good time on stage. I was young and playing well. And so he shot me an email and reached out. I had a website. So he found my, me through my website and everything reached out and he's like looking for a new violin player, blah, blah, blah. And first you want, you want me to audition and try it out. I was like, well, I'm kind of still in college. This is kind of, I really want to finish, you know, I'm so close to graduating and I was lucky enough that I um, played some gigs on like a winter break and spent so much time on all his music. And it was not easy music to learn, but it was, it was great because my uh, classical chops came in handy. A lot of very difficult, intricate, doubled parts that, again, on my facility was really important. So the training led me there. So if I can wrap this up, to me, what jumps out to me is, first of all, you went to the camps. You went to as many camps as you could when you were young. You were in a situation where people could hear you. You had a chance to stand out. Also, you made the point that when you were younger, you wouldn't necessarily invite yourself to sit in. But I think that's appropriate for anybody. Like, I mean, you don't just go up and invite yourself to sit in on a gig anyway, right? You need kind of need to know when and how to be enthusiastic without exactly. without overreaching. Yeah. I mean, it's not appropriate, you know, in my opinion, if someone comes up to me on one of my gigs and says, can I sit in? Occasionally that happens and says, sorry, you know, I don't know you. No, you yeah, can't. It's yeah, my yeah. gig, you know. But it's different if someone approaches me and says, hey, you know, would you give me some feedback on this video? Or could I take a lesson with you sometime? And could I get some pointers? Or maybe if it's at a camp and there's an after hours jam, that's different. Approaching the faculty and saying, I'd love to jam on a tune with you sometime would it be possible the difference between being too aggressive and being appropriately enthusiastic and mm -hmm. you know reaching out to people i think is really important i think you've always found that line like you're great about connecting because you always stayed in touch with me when you were 20 when you were 21 22 at least once or twice a year but not too often you would reach out and say how's it going hey i want to let you know what i'm up to i'd love to connect with you and talk on the phone could we meet and have coffee when you're in town blah blah you know and I thought that was just perfect. You know, it was perfect because it was the right amount of respect, but also hustle. And people have to have that hustle and you've got it. And that's, I think, part of the reason you're so successful now and you're going to be even more and more successful. So, okay, you were at the camps, you were where everybody was at, you made the YouTube videos, you took every opportunity when it came your way, you were eager, mm -hmm. you stayed in touch with people. These are all the reasons it sounds like why you landed these early gigs. And then when you talked about being the perfect sideman, you said, do your best, obviously learn your music prepare, have a good attitude. You know, I mean, is there anything more you would say specifically about that? Because you've been with John Jorgensen for a long time. So obviously, yeah, we've loves... probably done over like 700 shows together. <laughs> 
Was there ever a time where that you did something that maybe you felt that you stepped out of bounds or you were out of place in terms of that fine line in self-promoting yourself as a sideman, trying to get the most of the opportunity? Was there ever a time where, you know, maybe you talked to the buyer on the gig and John was like, hey man, you shouldn't talk or you tried to sell your own CD or was there ever anything that John was like, man, you need to dial that back? You know, he's he's been so nice. You know, the first couple of years I was just out of college and I was just really loving being a sideman and doing the best I can and then I recorded my first album and John actually was a guest on it Sleepless which was kind of a gypsy jazz with some original music he was really encouraging for me to do that and play gigs with that music because we were busy especially the first few years I played with John I mean when you're playing 130 shows with one band your other stuff is secondary you know like your other ambitions playing with John was my priority and I made it my priority and so when I started to get some of my own projects he was encouraging you know he was only kind and eventually let me sell my own CDs and never had issue with that and you know I was always respectful about it if anyone came up and was like what CD should I buy I'm like this one this is the John Jorgensen quintet you know and they're like what's this we're like well you know this is my project you know if you're interested he was giving me that respect and that leniency to, to, to be able to meet I did eventually then once I had started to have my own project I'm writing my own music especially once I had my second album under my belt you know I was really doing a lot of my own stuff having my own bands and I'm meeting all the venue owners, personally connecting with all them, especially ones that we've played a couple times. And all those contacts, I kept in touch, kept their emails, made that personal connection. And now with my own personal project, the Rhythm Future Quartet, planning a lot of the same places. I, I reach out, it's like, hey, you know, um, you know, played here with John, how you doing? Here's my project. You said to reach out when I had my own project that I thought was like worthy and going to be touring. And so here it is. And then, bam, I- I'm gigging, playing a lot of the same places John played. Okay, so as a sideman with John, he was supportive of you making the transition to being a leader. How did you deal with the problem of calendars? Because if you're doing, like you said, 130 dates in a year, it's hard to find the spaces in your calendar. I mean, quickly, do you have a tip for that? Yeah, well, that's always the hardest thing. So most people would not consider themselves lucky when their main band is doing a little bit less. And so actually, the timing worked out great. So the first few years I played with John, that was my main project, playing 130 dates. Eventually, John, you know, has other projects as well, and he was playing with some other projects. So it wasn't just that the gigs were drying up for the group. It was he had a couple of different projects he was doing, and that schedule lightened up. I had more room to actually pursue my own projects. You know, I was actually kind of blessed that that work became a little more reasonable to manage the whole package. Great. So uh, playing less and less with John, but still a good a good amount and still a healthy schedule. And then had had more time to pursue my own things. And then that's when the uh, Berkeley opportunity came up too. How do you organize your follow-up? You know, if you're booking a tour, if you're doing publicity campaigns, social media, I mean, I guess it's several questions, but just your contact management. I mean, because if you're staying in touch with tons of different people, how do you organize that personally? I have my calendar is just filled with things and notifications. And then I have in my emails... I have a lot of folders, whether it's like a pending gig or whether it's confirmed, and then I star things. Yeah, so I do have kind of a system. Do you set a certain amount of time to work on business every day or every week? And what does that look like? Sometimes things come in. Like I wake up in the morning, 
and this emails I got to respond to. And then if there's a tour, that's going to eat a couple hours of, you know, every day leading up into the tour to make sure everything's in line. It's not like my practice routine where I'll say, okay, I want to make sure I do three hours. It just goes and I just get as much as I can before I start going a little crazy. <laughs> okay. And yeah, so, so I just try to get as much done where I feel like I can sleep tonight knowing I didn't don't have too many loose ends. <laughs> so some of it's just managing what's coming and some of it's being proactive. One of the things I was really impressed with is with your what what's the name of your project right now the future i'm why am i spacing sorry uh rhythm future quartet so that's a group i started two years ago with a incredible young finnish guitar player named oli stoikely who i met actually at django in june the same camp from all the previous connections you booked a tour presumably you did a lot of the work on that although i think your co-leader was involved with some of it as well but i was really impressed with the tour you put together how much of that would you say would not have been possible if you did not have prior relationships as a sideman with john that definitely definitely helped so usually you you get a anchor date whether whether it's a festival or performing arts center or something that clicks with a weekend. And it's usually a weekend date. You just basically fill in as much as you can. And so that's when I'm going back to all the connections that I made. I'm calling, I'm emailing, I'm going through. I have saved every calendar that of all the gigs I've played with John will be like, oh yeah, I remember that place. Or this, I know hmm. I have a solid connection. Sometimes I have to cold call and sometimes I have the personal connection. Or for example, we did that big Midwest tour and that's your hood. You know, I knew I really wanted to play at Natalie's and so I contacted him and reached out to you oh do you mind like making the initial connection and then when we were at camp creative strings workshop the best week ever um, <laughs> thank you I made a point to meet the venue owner in person make another personal connection and then we locked in a date and so that's one of those things where you got a goal and you just have to make it make it happen things leaped out to me. One, you go back through your old calendars to find connections that you already have. I think people always overlook the connections they already have and the resources that they already have. So number one, going through your old calendars, there's some way that you're collecting all these different relationships or opportunities. Number two, it's not just going directly to a venue. Sometimes it's getting a referral from somebody that has influence. So in the case of Columbus, you reached out to your friend, me, and you're like, Chris, who you know? do you know this person at this venue? Can you help make the connection? And I think that's super smart. One of the things I talk to people about is something my dad told me, which was either ask for one of three things. Ask for a gig, if you're talking to somebody who you know can sign off on a gig for you, or two, ask for a referral, or number three, ask for advice. And I think you've always been good about all three of those things, and it sounds like you're doing that. Part of the reason I asked the question about the sideman thing was because I've been in situations before where I felt that it could actually hurt people if buyers at venues performing 
performing arts centers, if they perceive that you're a sideman, sometimes it can hurt you in terms of their perception of you as a leader. Have you ever encountered that or do you think that hasn't been a problem at all? Well, I think the nature of what I was doing as a sideman with John, he gave me a very strong leading role. You know, it's the uh, John Jorgensen quintet, but I was the uh, other leading soloist. And so if a venue saw us and I talked to them after and they see I have my own CDs as well and they can kind of gauge that I have some leadership qualities I think that they start to put it together that this guy has that and of course then they have to still have to vet whatever my project is so but what it does is it gets you that initial contact so they'll actually look at your email or actually answer your calls because venues are getting thousands of emails every day but if something's like oh violinist with John Jorgensen quintet or if they knew my name I'll put my name and so that's what's interesting because the personal connections are really important. Some venues, they only want to work with booking agents. And that's the case too. Sometimes if it's the band vouching for themselves, they think that it's unprofessional. But then if I have that connection already, I'll use it. So there's definitely still value to the personal connections. Well, you to make that personal connection when you're on the gig with John and you don't want to overstep. And it's also a lot of work, I think, to, to make those connections with people. I mean, it, you have to listen to them and engage in conversation. You might be tired. You're on the road. Do you make an effort to do that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I make sure I meet every venue owner and booker that I can. And again, it is, you don't want to be like, hey, John, step aside or, you know, <laughs> right. you're a leader, you know, you don't need to, whatever. <laughs> it's... It's all about being, you know, respectful, but understanding that this is what these people do is they booked bands all day and all night. So if you have a project you believe in, like I believe in my band and I feel like it deserves to play at the venue. So I'll try to make it happen. But deserving to play at the venue is not just being good music either, right? How do you make a case that a venue should hire your band if people don't know your name? What are the leverage points or what are the reasons that you give, you know, why should I book you? Nobody knows who you are. What's the reason that you give me? How do you overcome that objection? I'll usually say I'll, I'm going to be aggressive about publicity, reaching out to the community. I'll find out like a local radio station and I'll, I've already sent them a CD or something. It depends. If some venues, as you know, do their own promotion. And if you have a brand, you have the good videos, you have a good website, they know their audience goes and listens to the videos. And But sometimes it is a gamble. Sometimes it can be, it can be tricky. You never know. But that's another thing, selling yourself but not seeming like egotistical. Like, you need to have this is the best thing you're ever going to hear. No, <laughs> you know, it's like, that's not true either. <laughs> I think that confidence can come through whether you're calling or emailing this, like a respectful confidence. That's probably one of the last things I'd really want to drill into with you is, you know, your attitude. And it's one of the things that I feel sets you apart is that you have 
a enthusiasm and a positive attitude and confidence, not too much confidence. How do you maintain your positive mindset and the obvious belief you have in yourself and in what you're doing? How do you not get thrown off by that? You know, because a lot of people get thrown off by there's so many brilliant musicians in the world and, and it's easy for us to judge ourselves and think, oh, I could never be as good as so-and-so or, you know, I could never sell myself to this venue. How do you push through that and how do you maintain such a positive attitude all the time? Is that something you work on or is that just you learned it from your folks or something? You know, I think it comes back to this deep passion for playing music and sharing music and seeing that it affects people in different ways and that you can make people happy. And with so much, you know, that's going on in the world, I just feel like we're so lucky to be able to do this. And I guess it's perspective and always comes back to that. I'm doing something that I feel like is meaningful and people are enjoying and it's rewarding. Like I remember something you told me a long time ago was music is the highest highs and the lowest lows and it's it's but then you follow there's like you know always focus on the highs though you know and learn from the lows that's such a true thing like if you're having really terrible gig no one came out you learn from it like why did no one come out maybe it's not the right venue maybe we did terrible promotion but you always still play your best you always stay positive then the next time you know you, you just grow that's just I think it's a perspective thing and I, I feel lucky that I can have this positive perspective on things that reminds me of when you were talking about playing along with the Abersolds and recording yourself earlier, you know, it's kind of the same because, you know, if you're listening back on the recording and kind of keeping score, it's the same thing. You want to have that positive attitude and you want to go for it and learn from whatever you can, but not let it knock you down. I love that, man. But I think it's hard for a lot of people to have that. I mean, you have that. And you're well, don't get don't get me wrong. First time I heard you and I heard Billy play, I was like, what's happening? <laughs> Like, I was freaking out. But, you know, I, I took it. I was like, wait, I get to hang out with these guys. I get to learn from these guys. This is amazing. And I get to have the best seat in the house to, like, hang out and play with you guys. So, again, see how I, I saw it? Instead of saying, oh, these guys are ridiculous, there's nothing else that can be said. But I'm like, you know, no, there are things that can be said. But I'm also going to learn and appreciate you guys instead of being negative about it. So that's how I kind of would spin it and be like, I'm happy you guys exist. <laughs> instead of saying, because you guys exist exist, you know, there's no room for anyone else or something. That's really heavy to me because you're saying when you see somebody that whatever you admire what they do, a lot of us, we see that and we get dark or we get down on ourselves or we want to find a way to discount them or knock them down. But you really appreciate all these other people and celebrate these other people, but it doesn't make you feel diminished. Like you wrap it all into still feeling enthusiastic. I mean, that's yeah. awesome. That's amazing. That, yeah. And also I think music's so personal. No one's going to sound like you. No one's going to sound like me. And I believe that. Of course, like I mentioned earlier, I've been learning a lot from other people. But at the end of the day, it's what you have to say, what you're personally, what you have to say, what emotions are you feeling? What are you portraying? It's the combination of appreciating and hearing all these great people, but also knowing that what you have to say is something only you can say and it's unique to you. So I still have that. That's something that no one can take away. Now 
that you're 29, I mean, you're sort of not the youngest guy in the room now, but you're still young. But I mean, you're teaching a lot. You've got a lot of young people that are looking up to you at Berkeley and elsewhere. You've got great videos on YouTube teaching. Do you see a lot of younger people or even maybe older people that you teach that struggle with these, you know, not having a positive attitude like you? Do you recognize that, that not everybody has that the way that you do? And what do you say to them? It's it's sometimes the, it's the first thing I can tell that they haven't quite found the passion, at least as deeply as they need to in order to pursue it. And so it's always addressed first. I'll be, we'll listen to something. I'll be like, let's talk about it. Or, or what do you love? Like, what is it about music? So that they can be honest with themselves and really delve deep into it. But I also always bring it back to myself too. And I think there were times where like I was down on myself, but I think as a teacher, it's important for us to humanize uh, ourselves because you want to have respect, but you also want them to have perspective where it's like, I didn't play like this when I was your age. You know, I grew. These are things I've been doing to get to where I am now. Sometimes they forget. Like one of my students was like, oh, I'll never be able to play like you. Well, first off, the thing I said before, it's like, it's so personal. Like you don't want it. You want to play like you. I'll just be like, yeah, well, when I was your age, you know, I was not playing like this. You know, I had a lot of things to work on, had a lot of deficiencies, and but I worked on it and I had the determination and I had the right attitude about it. And so I try to instill that. I'm not perfect. Like that's why earlier I was trying to clarify, I'm not like the role model. And you know, there's really no role model because what worked for me might not work for someone else you know I love that man I learn a lot from the students it's so great to work with them and you know delve deep into a lot of concepts and when you teach something you really I feel like you really know it and want to know it and have to know it. I mean it's like it's your duty as a, to really deeply know something. So since I've started at Berkeley, and it's, it's been four years now, I think, which is crazy. What's the difference between the way you teach now and the way you taught four years ago when you started teaching at Berkeley? What what have you improved, or is there anything really big that you learned about teaching? You learn a lot about people, that's for sure. You learn a lot about personalities and how to like gauge if somebody's really understanding something or not. That's something you learn a lot about. But also, I think... The most important thing is to really get focused because we only get an hour each week and they have so many things going on. You know, their students at Berkeley, they have homework, they got so many things. So I've been really more focusing in on what's the most important elements that will be the most effective for their practicing. So, you know, making sure that they have a good practice routine for themselves. So sometimes my uh, routine of like five hours isn't going to work for them. Let's say I only have this amount of time. So I try to be like, okay, these are what's most important across the board. This is just general music. You got to know your finger, you got to know what notes are going to sound like. And so I, I try to boil it down. So that's one thing. Are you the, are you the youngest teacher in the string department right now? Yeah, I believe so. And you definitely I were mean, when you started at twenty five. I'll, I'll bet. Yeah, yeah, that's oh, that's, yeah. that's that's pretty. One amazing. of the youngest at Berkeley. Oh, at at the school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, amazing. Yeah. Well. This is incredible. I just want to ask really quickly, are there a couple things? I mean, we're going to have a ton of links. Anybody listening, make sure you go to the show notes page at christianhouse.com. And obviously, people are listening to your clips throughout this interview. Thank you for providing with with these great clips from your first 
uh, one of your first CDs, I know, Sleepless, which was a lot of your original tunes in the style of Gypsy Jazz, which uh, some of those tunes are classics um, for me and also my daughter, Camille, who, who my daughter, Camille, uh, earlier, I told her, I said, you know, I'm interviewing Jason tonight. And she said, oh, that's so great. And I said, what should I ask him? She said, ask him how he got to be so awesome. <laughs> so, um, but Aww, she Camille's loved- Camille's awesome. <laughs> Thanks. But I remember that Sleepless was a hit tune for her and, and she and I have both, we couldn't help but memorize that tune. Sleep. I, I know that's like a classic in the staple of like all like original jazz violin songs. But one yeah, of your albums it, is called Sleepless. We're hearing some of those clips. Also the album from the Rhythm Future Quartet. And then there was mm-hmm. another album that you put out a couple years ago that was, what was that called? Yeah, the clips from Sleepless. And I think I gave you a clip of the song Sleepless. And it's been, it's a fun one. It's been a fun one to teach and people will really resonate with that. And then tracks from my album Tipping Point where I was really kind of doing more more of my contemporary jazz elements with um and compositionally stretching and pushing my envelope you know i don't want to say pushing the envelope because you know everyone's got different envelope but pushing my own envelope and really stretching compositionally and what i can do and harmonically and it was a, it was a really fun project with piano and sax and bass and I played mandolin on that as well and then uh, my more current project uh, Rhythm Future Quartet and it's a really fun band and I, I get to fuse bebop and the jazzier side of things with the authentic kind of gypsy sound and the energy which I love you know personally and I think it's a infectious uh, sound and so the main things if I had to take a guess for people to connect with you I want to encourage people to connect with you on Facebook because I love your Facebook posts. You put a lot on Facebook. Do you have a fan page that people can find on Facebook? Yeah, I have my own personal one at Jason Anik, but since Rhythm Future Quartet's been gigging a lot, we've been posting a lot of stuff from the road and, and having fun with that. So that's just Rhythm Future Quartet. Yeah, so a couple of different pages. Well, we're going to post all the links because I want people to see your instructional videos on YouTube. You've also got some of your own videos on my Creative Strings Academy and people can link up with you to study, I think, via Skype at jasonanick.com, A-N-I-C-K. But they should definitely be getting your records. And I know after people have heard the clips on this podcast, they're going to run out and buy Jason's records. (laughs) Fly off the shelves. (laughs) I want to thank you, man. I just want to acknowledge you for just being a role model, you know, to so many people in our community and so many levels. I am incredibly grateful to consider you a friend. And I have so much respect for you as an artist and a human being so thank you very much for sharing with us it was it's always great to talk to you chris and yeah i'm looking forward to camp this summer yeah creative strings workshop rides again and i hope everybody's going to come and hang out with uh, you and me and the whole crew in columbus the first week yeah. of july well thanks again jason all right take care chris Thanks for tuning in today for my interview with Jason Anik. Please go to the show notes page to learn more about Jason's music and catch up with him. You can go to the show notes page at christianhouse.com. And I want to say thank you again to our sponsors at the Electric Violin Shop. You can go to electricviolinshop.com forward slash creative strings to get discounts 
on gear and let them know that I sent you. If you enjoy the Creative Strings podcast, I'd like to encourage you to share it and like it and leave a comment at the show notes page. I'll see you next time.